Hello, and welcome to Movie of the Year, the only podcast with the science and the screaming to determine what is the single greatest movie of any given year. My name is Ryan, and I will be your host, not just for tonight, but for all of 1982. Tonight is a very, very special episode because it's a little movie called Blade Runner. I did some research today on the internet. People have heard of this movie, and they have got a lot of feelings. Not necessarily when it came out, but definitely today. I am going to be hosting a competition where two people will come in and talk to me about Blade Runner. I will give them points based on how well they talk, how few times they mess up, and over like their compliments. And if they make me laugh, I have to give them a point, I think. Our returning champion, who absolutely obliterated the movie 48 hours last week, is Mike Gravano. <sighs> Are you not entertained? Also a Ridley Scott movie. Yeah, th- <laughs> thanks for all that, Mike. Uh, and coming back, yeah, like you want to try this again is great. Gonna give it another shot. What happens if you like the movie? Maybe liking the movie will give me <laughs> the inside inside track. Well, is it liking the movie or is it agreeing with the host? Because yeah, feeling the same. Uh, uh-huh. You can make all the good points, but if it's against his opinion, yeah, in one ear at the other, and not for all hosts. But definitely for me. Um, <laughs> and I have sort of... This movie's always left me a little weird, a little cold, a little more impressed and respect. Like, I respect it more than I loved it. That changes every time I watch it. Um, it. It's not just that you, like, learn more about how the plot goes. I definitely think I have a firm grasp on the plot. But there's still... It just it opens itself up m- the more and more you watch it. Mm-hmm. So although it's not my favorite movie of all time, I do like it more than I have. Where Mike, We'll start with you, Mike. Where are you with this movie right now? I was one. It's baffling how long it took me to watch this movie in my life, given who I am. I should have been on a Blu-ray before they ever came out and watched every Sunday. Uh, I watched this as an adult and did not like it one iota. And it was I don't know if it was the hype. I don't know if it was because it was the theatrical release and his wooden everything killed it for me. But That's what now, it is. Now, my friends... Oh my god, I fucking loved this movie. <laughs> now you're Blade Runner guy. Welcome. I I and I uh, for a long time I was like Blade Runner 2049 is infinitely better than the original. And now I don't know, I have to go back and watch the new one again. Uh, Dude, you'll just keep going back and forth. Yeah. I mean, yes, you, you'll never fine. come to you'll never come down with an answer. It's like who do I agree with? It's whoever talked last, the Democrat or the Republican. You know, that's just what I'm into. Um I I think that All of the cuts are fascinating. We're going to get into a little bit of that tonight. But I'm not sure if it changes my opinion that much, Greg, so to argue with you, because so much of it is just the feel of the movie, which is always there. Um, How how much more superior is the final cut to everything else? To me, in my personal estimation, um, there is like, there's this experience of watching this movie where you have to get on its wavelength and you have to be like, okay, there's things I don't understand about the culture in this movie, but I'll pick it up eventually in the, and I'm what I'm, 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 I mean that with the final cut with mm-hmm. the theatrical release. Anytime there was a moment where there was just like quietly going through the city, the producers freaked out one in, one in particular freaked out and was like, we have to have explainers about every part of this world so that our, 
viewers at home won't be at home. The viewers in the theater won't be lost. Um, and what that does is it forecloses all of your excitement about the boundlessness of the world. Mm-hmm. And the, coupled with the fact that Harrison Ford did not want to do this. And in fact, was had to be reminded he was contractually obligated to do it. And the fact that he let that seep into his performance in a profound way, in a way like he was daring them to be like, use this shit if you want to. Then. <laughs> and the chicken, the, the game of chicken, ultimately destroys the movie. I think that's why the theatrical release audiences were like, yeah, that was okay. Because instead of having this big, open, wondrous world, you had whatever Harrison Ford in monotone tells you is the meaning of all of this different Mm. stuff. And I just do think that that dramatically changes it. And there's a lot of just like vibe scenes in both this cut and in Blade Runner 2049. And Blade Runner is a vibe. Like it's also a good movie. It's also interesting, but it's primarily about a vibe and an aesthetic and a like, it's almost like a tone poem. You know, it all, it has to un, it has to unveil itself very slowly through a series of movements. And when you don't give it the space to do that, which is what happens with a theatrical release, it's not given any time or any space that it can't establish itself in the way that it wants to. There's just no way. Go ahead, Mike. I was going to say, his narration doesn't explain things. It pulls you out of the movie. I mean, So you don't get that overwashing of vibes and tones. In the narration, it starts, I'm Harrison Ford, playing a character named Rick Decker, who's talking right <laughs> now. Like, that's, that's, that's not going to you know, get you into Meet the world of the friend, movie. Meet my friend, Edward James Olmos. He might be a robot, so I'm going to deliver these lines as if he were a robot. Man. Also, is the ending different? Yes. My, okay. my original ending fair. was uh, driving through a forest. <laughs> yeah, the original ending, throughout, there's a lot of things that reminded me of Brazil watching this movie, but the ending of Bra- the real ending of Brazil and the original ending of this, I think, were closer together, but Brazil did it much better. That was part of the like hostage-taking by one of the producers. Like One of the producers was like, we have to have a happy ending that literally shows them driving to freedom in like an environment that has not existed. And so they went to Stanley Kubrick and they got like some of his B roll from filming the opening to the shining. And they were like, we'll just use this then. And so like, it, it, it's like Toria's happy movie. Not only does it not <laughs> fit in with the movie in a lot of ways, it's from a different movie. I mean, <laughs> the, I remember the music, and this is very famous music. Not exactly my jam, but uh, Vangelis. Very much mine. <laughs> um, like, even the music changes to, like, this big, broad, sweeping, we're driving through the forest. Uh, because they just, they had, they, they have these, like, ideas of what movies need to do. And one is mm-hmm. be very clear, and two is leave them with a happy ending and it's really hard even today to be like even with the success of Blade Runner now you know and how it all blew up and how it became this incredibly big important motion picture um film if you want that it's really it's still hard to say to producers no 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 no. nobody's gonna like it when it first comes out but trust me it will get there (laughs) at some point you can't say that kids will love it but your kids are gonna love it um, okay, so I think that we're all going in. Even if I'm the least positive about the movie, I, I think it's incredible. And you guys are through the moon. So over the moon, shooting the moon. Through the moon, Alice. <laughs> so I am, that makes me even more excited to talk about it when we come back. Blade Runner. To quote Harrison Ford's Rick Deckard, it's time to do a Blade Runner, y'all. 1982's Blade Runner went from commercial flop and mostly critical flop to one of the most influential sci-fi films of all time, creating a dark, rainy, dystopic future genre all by itself. 
The film tells the story of the aforementioned Rick Deckert, a former cop who became a Blade Runner, which is essentially a bounty hunter who tracks down runaway robots. Deckard tracks them down one by one until he finally meets up with Roy Batty. Ba- Roy, his name is Roy Batty. King Wait, crazy, yeah. His name is Roy Batty. <laughs> He's a little batty. The, the, no, the DD, the English, his British villain. Didn't I uh, didn't pick that up? Uh, played by Rudger Hauer. Taste buds that barely scrapes the top level of a skin job, but let's get into it. We just got done. Trying to figure out what a Ridley Scott film is like six episodes ago. So let's do it again. Ridley Scott is the master of blank. How would you fill in that blank? Uh, I would say I the th- master of the disaster. Mas- Sorry, Greg. What's your real thing? <laughs> Greg, shut the fuck up. I have something I, to say. I, I did have a real thing, but then my brain said, say disaster. <laughs> Go, Mike. Oh, please. Uh, I think he's the, the master of... Uh, tactile tactileness you can fucking touch it whether it's an alien in in uh not the nebuchadnezzar in the alien right. ship or in this you can fucking feel the grease the future grease and slime everything feels lived in and none of it's like oh it's the future so this is nice and uh or if it's in the last duel or if the italians everything fucking feels real and you can get dirty and you fucking will because it's a ridley scott movie i mean like how? What percentage of the budget went to building this one street that Harrison Ford walks down three or four times in the movie? Yeah. That became absolutely iconic. Like that's his scenes of like trying to eat a bowl of noodles, and then the cops coming and taking him away. That right there created endless movies. Is it? And, is it- Great ode to this movie in uh, Point Break because Harrison Ford said four dumplings, two, two, <laughs> four dumplings. Mike. Uh, for me, I would say, and uh, maybe it's a, a, a weak answer, but world building. And it, it's kind of the, the same thing there, which is, you know, it's not just that set of that street, which is so impressive. It's the way in which exit or extras are utilized, the way in which the, the like huge cast of background characters makes everything feel so crowded and so crushed in. And the way that, that really, really helps f- to establish Rick Deckard's being such a loner really like we here we have someone surrounded by people but connected to absolutely nobody and i think that that provides a lot of the really important clues about who he is and what his origins really are he can walk through a crowd of people and it's like he's not even there with them he you know he eats alone at this outdoor bar he's in a house full of or he's in a small apartment full of pictures but it's like who are these where who are these pictures who are these people that are supposed to be related to him and it is that that's necessary the, to get that. We have to get that world building. Mm-hmm. We have to feel that complete, like the entire planet basically comes to LA in this story. And there it's a world Work. that's depopulated. And yet at the very city centers, everything is extremely crowded. And he builds that world so convincingly um, through set, through extras, through costumes, through great paintings. This has like some of the all-time sci-fi paintings, the, the scene, the background scenes, and he does all that stuff so that he can spend more time with the characters, and so that the world becomes a three-dimensional place, and then he really develops the characters as three-dimensional spaces. Right. So you don't have to have the scene of like the president and the prime minister of Earth saying, "Man." world's really gone to shit and here's yeah. why 
And Good thing we have the Blade Runners. They're bounty hunters that bring in. And that's the crime. <laughs> that's really the crime of the voiceover, right? right? Is because the voiceover takes the strongest part of the movie and covers it up with terrible voiceover well, in an unnecessary way. The crawl does it very succinctly and quickly. Mm. It's one of the best crawls. Uh, it's not at a stupid fucking angle. Emperor Palpatine doesn't just come <laughs> back to life. Mike. And yeah, and, and I see a lot of Terminator 2 in this movie, too. Of like, oh, right. uh, no, we're just going to go. Yeah. Uh, we're going to give you like the base information. Like the paragraph at the start of a history book, uh, textbook chapter that mm. you're not going to read anyway. And then we're going to fucking go. And hopefully you can catch on. And we just said in the first segment, the intro, that we didn't. You know, right. like it's really difficult, but man, when you finally do, it's so much more rewarding. Especially like, and I know this was like the very beginning of nerd culture, but like nerds like to dig in. If you put yeah. it all, everything on the platter, fuck that. So the interpretation, the chewing on it, and reinterpretations, that's why it owns most of the internet. The and internet another, is Blade Runner. Another thing I think he does really well in terms of world building is. I'm not going to give you fashion and styles and architecture that actually looks cool now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you the stuff that makes you feel like you're in a different time and place because when you look at the fashions, you don't think they look cool. You think they look stupid because they're not the fashions of your time. And I'm going to give you architecture that looks mm-hmm. like oppressive and really weird. I mean, like the, like the intricate ziggurats and right. like... Like temples, Somebody with pim- pyramids and shit. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like all the that kings stuff. are in the pyramid, as all of the slaves are way far below. You know. Yeah, and and, and it, Ryan, <laughs> it looks so ostentatious and awful, but that helps us really understand that it's a different place than the place we live in. Rather than it looks like the cool, slick version of now that, that we hope for. It's the distant future of 2019, and, and you then, really could feel you that. imagine. <laughs> If you take a far superior film that had clearly seen Blade Runner, Demolition Man, that the whole time they're thinking about what looks cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what and, what lo- and so then when we watch it now, it doesn't look cool because it looks cool. It only looks cool it's, to it your looks 1993 90s cool. yeah. Yeah, sensibilities. But what looks endear- right. enduringly cool about Blade Runner is it really went out there and made its own like fashion and style it by drawing on a lot of like historical fashions like the 40s and and stuff like that but it really made it its own and now it does kind of look cooler (laughs) cooler than it did when it first came out because we associate the movie with such coolness Mm -hmm. i want to i want to fill in that blank real quick which is genre blending and i think that that's such a common thing now the the blank beats blank it's such Mm -hmm. a easy way to pitch a project and it's not even like as specific as like mean girls meets back to the future a movie i would definitely watch but (laughs) um his whole thing of not in a hacky way doing you know if we take alien it's it's a sci-fi movie but that's a horror movie you know and if if like thumb and louise and a workplace drama (laughs) yeah and thumb and louise is uh, a best friend it's a road trip movie but it's a western Western. yeah um (laughs) And this movie being a sci-fi movie, clearly, right? It takes place in the future. There are flying cars. That is sci-fi. That's how sci-fi Boom, works. Boom, sci-fi. Check. And it's not. It's it's noir or neo-noir or however you want to feel it. Like, this was every time that you watch And Blade it's a Rider, monster movie, too. Like, it spent so much time being, like, a uh, old-school doctor, like, having a Dr. Caligari-style, like, just monster movie. Right. But... Th- Every time you watch Blade Runner, it, it gets this title. It's There's this new thing that you're watching. And for me this time, I couldn't shake the fact that it was an, a movie filmed in the 80s that takes place in the 
2020s that shot like the 1940s. And that's mm-hmm. there's that's two 40-year gaps in between. If we're going to make a movie about the ni- 40 years in the future, we're going to shoot it like 40 years in the past. Um, the neo-noir of this film is what makes it successful more than the sci-fi of the film. Oh, yeah. And it's something I did not. I don't at least remember picking up on or really focusing on the first time I watched it, but this is it like I recently rewatched Chinatown. I've been reading a lot of noir books. Like this, this is my jam right now. So the whole time I was like, "Oh, he's got a detective, some shit." Uh, and specifically, <laughs> S- Southern California, Los Angeles noir. Y- yes, and and the, the big yeah. mystery of the replicants and all, all that. He is solving that, and yeah, Southern California noir is a very specific thing. Versus, I don't. I guess there's small town noir, uh, but. The, the, well, the amount like of the paranoia that, that he he doesn't trust anybody, even who I think Edward James almost is his best friend or former partner. But when we first no. meet him, he's trying to arrest Deckard. It seems like I, I feel like he's like a magical creature that pops in when the movie I, needs it. Nobody but not else in a can bad see way. him. <laughs> well, honestly, the question of who Gaff is like that's a really big question. He what how he represents himself is as working with the police department but he's clearly some sort of agent that runs deckard that like keeps deckard on pace and keeps him doing what he's supposed to be doing he clearly like i would say he is ultimately he's from the tyrell corporation he Mm -hmm. pretends to be associated with the police but he's always like coming to get deckard and bring him to go talk to the the police chief but it's always like who's actually in charge here and the whole ending where gaff puts the unicorn down he clearly he like runs and operates deckard i don't think he's associated with the cops at all which is why he's so fancy interesting and like yeah and i mean there's something up with his eyes too his eyes are very clear i think it's supposed to be that he's got like some sort of augments or something i don't think there's any way in which he is a detective or a cop the way i take that was that uh like how is he clearly not a replicant you know like definitely not a replicant i'm gonna make sure nobody thinks that i'm a replicant by because i have these bright blue eyes there was also another thing too with all of the the melding of the cultures and is he the most melded you know like Mm. we have a uh latino guy who has like a lot of asian qualities to do the origami uh and yeah and like there's like i make up street japanese like the makeup and the facial hair sort of is like an attempt to look more asian yeah, but then he's also very like I would say he, there's also like a hyper Europeanness to his dress and the fact that like the affectation of having the cane, like he's a melange, right? He's like the whole thing. Right. He's all of it coming together. And for most of the movie, you're like, this guy doesn't even speak English, and then it turns out in the end, he d- he, he totally does. does. <laughs> That's I didn't even put because so often like that like Angel Batista in Dexter. Dress is so different from the rest of the. Wait, hold on, Dexter reference. Mike, give the point. <laughs> from the rest of the force, like I, I thought, there's just like there's so often there's like, well, here's you could have a movie all about. I'm sorry, what is almost his name in this? Gaff. 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 You could have a movie all about him because him and Deckard are both in different ways against what the rest of the system seems to be like. But uh, Deckard blends in stylistically. But if Gaff walks down the street, it looks like he wants he peacocks a little more. Right. Uh, I think this story basically is the story of their the first time they have a replicant go out and get replicants. And Gaff's job is to make sure that, that the replicant that they're having do that does it correctly. And so he's always there to like help instruct him and give him the next mission about, that he's supposed to do, basically. Through origami. I Through definitely origami. want to talk about that. Not now. Uh, but... Shit, I lost my train. Oh, the, the going back to, to the Ridley Scott of all and the, the, what did you say, melange of Gaff is, I think the smartest thing Ridley Scott did was look to the future and be like, well, 
Asia is going to be whether it's China, Japan, they're they're going to be superpowers and we're going to be super blended. And so many things took like that's part of that genre defying of cyberpunk is everybody after that was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I bet uh, I bet the West won't rule forever and we should blend some stuff. Was this did this create cyberpunk? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it very much, you know, cyberpunk existed before it, but it, this very much married a style to it. But it is very much at, like, the origin of cyberpunk. I don't think that, really, I think cyberpunk comes out of a series of short stories. Um, Gibson? Yeah, Gibson writing Neuromancer. But before that, he wrote, you know, Johnny Mnemonic, and he wrote oh, a, bu- a, a bunch of other, um, like, things that really, I think, you would say that that's the origin of cyberpunk. But the way cyberpunk gets, like, fused um, with, um, with this movie and with its, like, its aesthetic, its music... And then it's like basic themes and the fact that it gets very uh, neo-noir here. I think like the two things are basically could be said to start existing at the same time because of how much Blade Runner really grabbed a hold of cyberpunk and turned it into something. I read a story that you guys better not have read because we're doing trivia later, but uh, that Gibson went to see Blade Runner and walked out 20 minutes in said, fuck, and had to go and scrap everything he had for his new novel, Neuromancer. Because really? it was just all like it was the movie that he was watching. <laughs> I mean, it's the, the central questions are very much the same, which is like what makes a thing suddenly like a sentience? What suddenly makes if you make something so complicated and it becomes self-aware, mm-hmm. how can you then say that that thing is not a human or yeah, not? What is life? Yeah, exactly. What is life? Yeah, <laughs> which is a, a fun, a fun, just theoretical thing we can talk about right now, and it's not what in it, society. What is life? Is a totally normal. Uh, question for a human to ask, but when a robot asks it, you look like an idiot robot. Like what? We should murder you right now, robot. I know the answer to this already, but for the (laughs) listeners at home, please tell me um, what is life. And on that note, we're gonna take a break. But when we come back, Vangelis is he? Does he belong on the Mount Rushmore of 1982 music? Let's find out. Mount Rushmore. You know what that sound means? Because it had words in the sound. It's time for <laughs> Mount Rushmore. I think Ryan might be a replicant. <laughs> Tonight is the music of 1982. Now, guys, we have a uh, mixtape for 1982 that we have not recorded yet. Are we excited for this mixtape? Yes. I think it's oh, going to yeah. be very specific. I think our goal for the mixtape should be almost the anti-Rushmore. Of, like, find the great songs that won't necessarily be on this head. So we're going to put four pieces of shit on here and then make a good mixtape. big pieces of shit. Yeah, I I I think there is salvageable music from 82. I'm just not totally sure it's the music that people in 82 were really hyped on, with one big exception. And, Craig, as the challenger, you're going first. What is that exception? Yeah, uh, this is a little unfair. This is like when uh, you got the the first pick in the the season thing for the Patreon listeners. But um, a little album called Thriller <laughs> came out in 1982. Can you believe it? Uh, sort of changed music. Uh, and you could honestly go a couple of ways with this, but I'm going to go with the conventional way and put Michael Jackson's head up there. Non-controversial figure, Michael Jackson. This 
album is wait of all the action figure heroes, all the different types of Michael Jackson. You're choosing non-controversial as the yeah, type I'm choosing of, yeah. non-controversial. Right. So not the one where he's dandling his baby over a balcony or one where he's like Classic actively Jacko. testifying. You know, uh, no, I'm the mine is um, the one from uh, well from the Thriller video <laughs> with the eyes. Where everyone's just like, we love you, Michael. You're so great. Yellow but eyes, but the nice one. Uh, thriller. I mean, there's nothing I need to say about it. Everybody ha- has their yeah. own personal relationship with Thriller, and uh, that's very important. I we uh, I don't know. We try on this show to not talk about certain things. Um, we've never done a Woody Allen movie in any year. Uh, we keep denying Mike when he nominates Harvey Weinstein for the Pop Filter Hall of Fame every time. Look uh, at his career. I just think we're on the right side of that one, Ryan. Okay. I mean, we do because we're biased. Uh, Mike disagrees. I. Uh, is Thriller so big that it doesn't matter? Yeah. I mean, Thriller's so big, I did it at my wedding, which should be a pure non-sexual harassment, non-sexual I mean, crimes related area. Doesn't Kanye have a line like that? He's like, do you really think he touched them kids? I mean, that guy came out with Thriller. Like, <laughs> Obviously, I'm butchering the line, but he basically makes that exact point. He's like, yeah, but it's... Michael, like his music is so... So I don't know. I mean, at the policy of the show definitely is to steer clear of... But the the new thing with Michael Jackson is they're like you know that's fucking racist that um like he got railroaded and that the, and I I just don't know I've never really like looked into any of this I believe victims racism's wrong Thriller's a great album I'm <laughs> very confused I don't think you should like as vote for have me. kids over for <laughs> sleepovers at your do, house Do like, you know what I other just, shows do is they say Thriller was great and don't fucking <laughs> <laughs> wade into the bog of despair. Good call. I'm just pre-admonishing myself. <laughs> Good move. My, uh, Michael Jackson is on the list. Mike. Yeah, I guess so many that are equally as big and clearly. Yeah, right? There's no step down yeah. here. It's, uh, I mean. Oh, and by the way, I have a bonus answer. If anybody says uh, the thing that is in my head, that's five extra points. In no, 1982, that's, that's too many. Three, holy three cow! Points. No, yeah, but time out. It yeah, can't that's be five. Crazy. That's like, crazy. Man. <laughs> it has to, like well, three, right? Three, Ryan? three is extra. Three extra points. Five is game ending. 1982, New Wave was huge and one of the biggest albums of that era to come out. Uh, that people didn't like mock all the time. It wasn't only a punchline, but her name was Rio, and yes. sometimes people were hungry like a wolf. Mm-hmm. It's Duran oh, yeah. Duran. Yeah, both of them. Both Durans. I want a two-faced Duran style. Have. Have we mocked Duran Duran? I feel like maybe there's been like trash talked on Duran Duran, but aren't they actually kind of a cool band? Yes. And I this, think Rio and Hungry Like awesome. a Wolf are incredible songs. I wish I could say the name of the last song. Mike, can you say it? Hungry Like the Wolf? Greg? Hungry Like Wolf? I, w- wolves are hungry. I can't say it. Oh, yeah, because you have trouble saying wolf. Because you say wolf. wolf. I can, I can say hungry gol- like the wolf. I can say golf. Hungry if it, like a wolf. <laughs> if, it's, <laughs> if it's hungry like a golf, I can say that word. But right. I don't know what it is. Um, can we just admit that if you were seven, that would be adorable? Yeah. <laughs> I'm hungry like Mommy, the wolf. look at the wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I live most of my life in that if I was seven, yeah. this would be adorable. <laughs> it would be, like, yeah, inappropriate. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about the, uh, is the album called Rio? Yeah, it's called Rio. Yeah, that album cover. What were those pictures? Why? Oh, why were they everywhere in 1982? Like they were always at like stylists or nail like, salons. Yeah, once yeah. again, yeah. salons in the 90s. And it was just a, a hip style. And Duran Duran was like on the cutting edge of that. So, yeah. uh, Mike, I hate to be a Greg about this and just put everything on the mountain, but you're on the mountain. Yes. Mike. 
Gorgon. That's the only time Mike has not been upset when somebody is being a Greg about something. <laughs> Sus. Okay. Wow. It's uh, we're getting like. Is it Slim Pickens now? Dangerous territory. Well, it's just dangerous territory. Like a misstep here, saying a really dumb yeah. one would just like open the door for Mike in a way where he would just I know saunter through. Such a saunterer. Or it could give you three um, points. Okay. How about this? How about this? I gotta go with this. You know, music is also a lifestyle. It's also about building a brand. Uh, Nineteen eighty-two. Uh, before he was in Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne was performing on stage, and someone threw what he believed to be a rubber bat on stage. <laughs> Uh, he picked the bat up and he did what you would do when you see a rubber bat, which is you would try to bite its head off. And he bit the head off a live bat, which is wrong and messed up. And it's weird that somebody threw a bat at him even. But that idea of him like biting the head off that bat turned him into like beyond being a metal god, like the most hardcore, awesome uh, metal artist of all time. Even though he's like questionably talented I don't know. Yeah, you can I mean, draw a direct line of him biting the head off the bat and him 30 years later going Sharon! all over totally MTV. oh yeah man they 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 played that up constantly uh he also had an al- album come out this year and he was going to be like dio is leaving black sabbath in 82 and so he's just about to join black sabbath okay uh people who are rock fans like younger kids if there's any young kids out there listening to this and are also fans of rock do not read books about rock and roll because you will find out all the details that ruin. Like, mm-hmm. Ozzy eating the head off a bat was so legendary. Very cool. Also, that green M&M story, or is it green Skittles? Like, what no, a, green M&M, right? Green, that, what a bummer that story actually turned out to be. It was just a, like, a really smart logistic thing that they did. <laughs> There's nothing more rock and roll than like super clever logistics, though, if you think about it. I'm going to put Ozzy on the maybe pile, Mike. All right, I, th- I thought Greg was building up because it's all about a brand. It's all about how you look, and uh, people can name like two of this guy's songs. But he was so big, and his fashion was so big, and he took I think a lot of the punk aesthetic and made it okay for normies and suburban moms to be like, oh, well, Billy Idol's all right. Yeah, because he he sprung out of Generation X, right? They had broken up, and he went uh, solo in 1982. Billy Idol's self-titled album came out, and it had White Wedding on it, and it had Dancing with Myself on it. Uh, and this I guy is, th- huh? The Donna's song? The Donna's song. Huh. He covered the Donna's. That's crazy. The least punk song of all time, Dancing with Myself. Well, oh, my god! He could charlotte so much years before they did. I remember my aunt being like, this good Charlotte, they're a fun boy band. And then she saw them and like, do you know what they look like? <laughs> <laughs> These are not gentlemen. And that is Billy Idol. Uh, but he gave the 80s the aesthetic. Uh, okay. I, I hear that. And so I'm going to put a little plus next to his name on the maybe pile. Greg? Okay. Really in it now, Greg. Okay. Um, in 1982, part of what we're trying to get on the mountain is good heads. We want a good head, right? So he's got a good head on his got shoulders. Good head. Very like recognizable head. Stevie Wonder, uh, Ebony and Ivory came out in 82, which was a big song. Uh, and also Stevie Wonder's original Musiquarium, which was like a greatest hits album of his. Basically all the music that uh, had made Stevie Wonder such a big name. Uh, Stevie Wonder is my 1982 pick to win, Ryan. All right, after this, Mike, it's speed round. What do you got? Uh, oh, this is uh, not huge at the time. 
but huge in certain circles, especially in Southern California, and would go on to be one of the most influential albums to ever come out. This little hardcore band, they were in the scene, and they're like, ah, we'll make one more album because our lead singer's going to college. The Descendants, My Logos Get to College, came out, and every band Ryan has ever liked would not exist without this album. Is this the guy who sold Sprite in the early 90s? He sold Sprite in the early 90s. Was it? Remember that guy who was uh, Fido Dido? Is that the same as Milo? Oh, yeah. yeah Fido, Fido Dido. Dido is Milo. Fido Dido and, and Milo look very similar. Even if you don't know Descendants, you know their logo of the little the little cartoon of Milo, which is what I would say we we're putting on the mountain if they made it up there. Yeah. I uh, love the pink, Mike. I'm just going to have to maybe it for now. Uh, speed round. Here we go, Greg. All right. Uh, pink Floyd came out with The, the Wall, the movie. And finally, we have Pink Floyd is what we need, which is just one guy, Bob Geldof, as Pink Floyd. The Boomtown Rats put that guy? One head up. Yeah, we could just put that head up on the mountain. All right, Mike. Uh, Toto, with their album from that, that Africa song is on, came out in the 82. All right. Could I just do one more? Yeah. Johnny Cash released his 68th album oh in 82, and he hosted Saturday Night Live with musical guest Elton John, and they That's both performed two songs. Elton Johnny Cash. When I think of 1982, I think of Johnny Cash. But he released his 68th album, Mike. It should no, be mentioned. crazy. Mike, you got one more? Uh, Flock of Seagulls. Come on. If you, uh, also, that's the mockable part of 82. Looks-wise. Hair-wise. Uh, the person who... The bonus person who nobody mentioned, so... Ryan. 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 Takes so long. Is <laughs> Phil Collins, uh, arch enemy of the show, just a piece of shit person, but he did release an album in 1982, and I was hoping he would make it on here. Your... Mike. 1982 Aww. Music Rushmore... Mike. Is Aww. Michael Jackson, Duran Duran... Milo from The Descendants and Billy Idol. When we come back, more Blade Runner. Hey, guys, thank you so much for listening so far. And let me just tell you that everything ahead of this commercial is much better than what came before it. That's my guarantee. While I have you here, let me tell you about a website. It's called yourpopfilter.com. And it's everything you need that's related to pop filter. Everything Mike, everything Ryan, everything Greg, everything Cassie, everything is there at yourpopfilter.com. While you're there, go to yourpotfilter.com slash Amazon. Make that your new Amazon bookmark and do your shopping from there. That way we get a little piece of the action and Amazon doesn't. Make sure you're also listening to everything that Pop Filter has to offer, which includes the Superhero Show Show, a podcast that covers every single TV show that's based on a comic book or comic book property, and Movie of the Year where we sit down and try and figure out what is the single greatest movie of any given year. That's Superhero Show Show. That's Movie of the Year. And that's YourPopFilter.com. Rate, subscribe, review. Bye! Let's talk about sex baby, specifically in the movie Blade Runner. It's a dark film about a dark city and a bunch of terrible people, but what do we make of the sex scene? Let's start with the sex scene. And then okay. let's get to the uh, just the sexuality of everyone else in the movie. Okay, so like this is the, the this is like the part of the movie that I feel very uncomfortable with. So she w- wants to storm out. Rachel wants to storm out, and he runs over, and he's got such a mean look on his face, and he slams the door in her face so she can't leave, and then he shoves her a two-handed shove. Yeah. into like the window of his apartment 
and it looks like it hurts. And then he steps forward, and he looks, again, so angry. And he's looking at her with intensity. And then he grabs her, I think, by the arms. And then eventually they kiss. And eventually she's like, she doesn't say, I want, I think she says, I want you to touch me. But she says, I want your hands on me. Well, before she says that, he says, say, kiss me. Say, do this. And now I'm like, wait, we know she's a robot. Is I don't know the laws of robotics. I don't have Wooden Harrison Ford telling me how everything works here. (laughs) Is she have to listen to him? Like, it, it felt very coercive. Yeah, and and it's like he knows that he does know that she is a replicant, and it's his job to hunt down and kill replicants. And at first, he seems very uncomfortable about her presence mm-hmm. because it's like, yeah, I mean, this is it's his job to retire these these folks. Um, but then also, it's clearly like the, he's also very attracted to her. And well, Sean, yeah, you're gonna be attracted to her. But it's just that's such a weird. That's like a weird starting yes. point. And then for the the scene to be, I don't know. The other thing is though, but like, is this by eighty two standards? Did we still need? Did there always have to be resistance from women in sex, or otherwise it was improper or something? I didn't think about that. That is an awful, gross question. No, or it's, a, the, it's the like answer. an awful thing to even have to talk about. But if in a lot but of maybe it's a cold lot outside of, of relationships, <laughs> kind of yeah. Where like there has to be this like pantomimed. The, at least we in don't the want world a slutty fiction. robot. Well, I think that there's so many things going on here, and it's a lot to parse out. And I think as a 2022 audience member, what you want is for Harrison Ford to die and die because he did this. You mm-hmm. know, like, there should be punishment for this. Like, you you can show men treating women like this, but almost like going back to the, the code that predates the, uh, movie ratings, you then they have to have their comeuppance, you know? Right. Yeah. And he doesn't have that. He actually is totally fine at the end. They actually run away together at the end. But, because they love each other. But the whole, there's so many things going on of, one, uh, a loner trying to talk to a person, essentially an incel, trying to uh, <laughs> talk to another quote-unquote human being. He's very bad at it. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if it's Harrison or Rick, but both of them are very bad at relating to other human beings because of whatever. Uh, and then also the treatment of this lower form. Now, uh-huh. what, is, what is the lower form? Is it replicant or is it woman or I, you know, but woman like, uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure exactly what, why he's doing this other than I'm better than you. And I get mm-hmm. to, I think that's I, the big thing is I get to, and I don't know any other option. I, I think two, two things I think about it is one in the performance of it is he did a, the charming version of this with Carrie Fisher already. So he went, I don't want to be compared to Mike uh Han Solo uh and then right after this scene it cuts to the city skyline and zooms in on an, a giant ad where it's a geisha and so yeah. it really feels like Scott is going if you don't get what I was just saying she is to him I will zoom in on a geisha but Daryl Hannah is a pleasure bot mm-hmm. so on Mars or whatever the four robots that escape three of them are like shovelers or Mars diggers and right. one was a pleasure bot. So we know that they exist, and he's yeah. choosing to find this one who, first of all, believes herself to be a human. Right. And we have to get to that of, like, finding out that you're not. And then also, I, instead of going to a pleasure bot and being able to pay for it to do whatever I want, I'm going to treat you like this. It also reminded me of the uh, Three Days of the Condor. Oh, yeah. 
like she is weirdly his captive not just because he literally slams the door when she tries to run away but because like the situation of her having fled the corporation Mm -hmm. and gone to him like he is supposed to retire her for doing that he's later told to go and retire her and so it like he has her at such a disadvantage not just because he's putatively human not just because like it, it it's she has nowhere to go, yeah, and he uses that as like a leverage against her. It feels like I know, I, like I saw a bunch of people online saying this scene should have been cut. If they're gonna make seventeen fucking versions of this movie, then cut this scene or trim it or do something, including one that comes out in 07. And yeah, and it, like at that point, we're all we all know, but like what it's saying about forties films and eighties society and protecting about like the the robots of the twenties future. Going back to that you know 40 year gaps between before and after the 80s it's i I, and not to mention the fact that like if you were about to like rick he keeps doing things that make sure that you hate him so there is nothing to actually root for in this rainy bullshit town if i found out this was cut i'd be like really scott's a pussy uh it makes me uncomfortable that is good art shouldn't be all fluffy and good and if you want this movie to be art and i think it is I think it needs to have some sharp edges here. And he is not his Indiana Jones persona. He is not his Harrison Ford persona. He's not a lovable scoundrel. This guy's pretty gross. And I think this scene's super important to that and to the movie in general. And, like, the the robo what? folks are weird. They're, like, they do weird things. And it's the you're supposed to, I think, think of them as monsters at the same time that you think of them as victims. And he is one of them, right? And this is one of the things he does that it's like that's that is kind of monstrous and that keeps us from being able to fully connect to him because we're supposed to feel the push and pull with him mm. of like we don't like you but because the camera follows you, we just keep giving you right. the benefit of the we'll... doubt basically even though you are doing a pretty awful awful thing that the movie is morally opposed to. Which is that different than Humphrey Bogart? You know, like uh, just following him, we like him, and you know he's the main. No, is it, yeah, no, it's. I yeah. think it's very much the same. I mean, like you know, it, it's not. It's not comfortable to watch Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall in scenes together. It's not comfortable. Who is like it's thirty years young, like the thirty year age gap. She's like nineteen or something, right? <laughs> in that, like, and you feel that as the viewer, especially as the modern viewer, it feels really uncomfortable. And so, is he replicating that, eh. um, <laughs> or <laughs> and or can you cop? Could you could he do more to comment on that without just reproducing it in the way that he did? I wonder. I want to get to the other horniest couple in the movie, which is the third act. It is Roy and Rick. Rick. No, oh. <laughs> Roy and Rick's fight to me. They just keep stripping clothes off and get getting closer and closer. What are we doing here? Yeah, Roy, when he decides to go full monster mode, he strips to his boxers and shoves a th- screw through his hand and goes, all right, now it's villain time, bitches. Well, <laughs> I think in part what's going on there is like he is actively dying from yeah. the very beginning of the movie. And I think he gets loopy near the end. And I think because that's it's supposed to be the we pity him at the same time that we fear him. So he's like the things he's doing that don't make any sense are because he's so weird and i think the the weird pain the dr- the driving the nail through the hand it makes him 
Christ-like, obviously, by having mm. that wound. And at the same time, it like I think it the pain keeps him centered. And so it's like right. the nature of pain in terms of like keeping us on track and everything. But yeah, I think the reason he strips out of all his clothes maybe is to build this sexual tension. But it also it's just because he's like not working right anymore. Right. His brain is no longer good. It's turning into mush. They can't figure out a way to keep that from happening. And so he's just actively turning into soup. In a perfectly choreographed third act of a fight in the dark there's blues you know like we're barely lit by the neon around us um we're so much of it is what we can't see because of all the shadows and the darkness uh and these two alpha males are in a lot of time in a lot of ways performatively trying to go after each other and act like the man they think they're supposed to be roy batty pushing his head through the ceramic tile will always be one of the funniest things I have ever seen in my entire life. Well, I also like, he did the move already and it's clear Scott, you know, used everything he learned and did in 79 with alien and used it here. When Harrison is up against the wall and is terrified, the hand going through, we're like, all right, Roy knows things through walls is scary. And then he goes, Hmm, I'll double down. And he does it. And it's the, it's so silly. And it feels like something from Pee Wee Herman more than from a horror movie. Or Spaceballs, like literally watching Spaceballs (laughs) in the movie Spaceballs. Like Roy has like a manager in his ear saying like, all right, Roy, that was a good scene. Here's what you need to do for the next one. (laughs) I, I, I do. I definitely do think that is an area in which you see, his me- the mental breakdown of the character mm. like he can't like decide what's a good idea Work. anymore what's uh, intimidating <laughs> and there, is that the case with ridley scott too <laughs> yeah because i think through i think throughout this movie there is a tremendous sense of the carnivalesque right the idea that of the topsy-turvy nature of this new Work. place mm. um pris is like a acrobat um jp sebastian's house is full of like clown imagery right so like everybody is absurd but the uh there is still like the life and death death stakes going on and so i think that like the end of the movie has to be absurd and if if you think about the source material too uh do androids dream of electric sheep like it this movie keeps all the cool things about it but it also manages to keep some of the zaniness without copying it over one for one it's a zany novella and the movie captures that and i think things like wrecker howard <laughs> pounding his head through that wall <laughs> helps to remind us that like um yeah that air of carnivalesque is like still present even at the end of the movie oh fuck uh, i did not see that coming i thought i was really interested in what you guys were saying but apparently <laughs> it's trivia time um you guys know the rules i'm gonna ask you guys a question it will probably be about blade runner but We'll see. <laughs> Not necessarily. Uh, you respond by saying your name. Please wait till the question is done. Otherwise, I will not call on you. Blade Runner trivia the first. What did Ridley Scott use to make it look like characters had light in their eyes? Greg. Greg. Little red lights. Uh, I'm going to give it to you. It was light. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this movie was a flop thanks to what 1982 blockbuster? Greg. Greg. E.T. That is correct. Greg. What what is ET short for? Mike. Greg. Mike. Extraterrestrial. Incorrect. Greg. Greg. He's got little stubby legs. He's got those tiny little legs. Shit. Yeah. Greg. Philip K. Dick claimed after seeing Harrison Ford on set, he has been more decorated. He is more decorated than I ever imagined. It has been incredible. Deckard exists. What's so odd about Philip K. Dick saying this? Greg. Greg. He's a dick. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I do like using the word dick, but that's incorrect. Mike. Mike, he had a son named Deckard? Incorrect. Um, the answer is Harrison Ford is fucking terrible in this movie. 
I don't know why anybody would appreciate his performance. Number five. Because I think he's supposed to be terrible. He's a robotic performance because he's an android. No, he's a bad actor in this movie. Straight <laughs> up. Uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? Greg. Greg. Yeah. Incorrect. Mike? No. <laughs> they don't. Mike. <laughs> Nobody dreams of sheep electric or otherwise. Are androids who wear masks and get vaccinated dreaming of electric sheeple? Greg. Greg. No, nobody dreams of sheeple. Incorrect. Mike. Mike. Yeah? Yeah, they are. Mike. Oh, my God. <laughs> the title of the movie was taken from what Alan Norse book? Mike. Mike. Blade Runner. That is correct. Oh, shit. <laughs> There's a guess. Uh, in the book, what does a Blade Runner do? Greg. Greg. He hunts down people who left his tribe. Incorrect. Mike. Mike. Uh, does sprints on ice. <laughs> Incorrect. Uh, I love when you guys overthink things. Uh, he sells illegal surgical equipment. Nah. So the n- title makes sense of that one, not this one. Yeah. And then no one ever takes a stab at explaining it. <laughs> Ridley Scott toyed with the idea of having the movie take place in San Angeles. What movie eventually did take place in San Angeles? Mike. Mike? Volcano. Incorrect. Greg. Greg. Demolition Man. Demolition Man. (laughs) Sean Young was essentially kicked out of Hollywood when she got pissed about losing what role? Mike. Mike. Catwoman. Catwoman. Mike. Came on to talk shows dressed as Catwoman. That did not work for her. Oh, ouch. What cable channel did Scott, Ridley Scott, excuse me, uh, credit for reviving Blade Runner after its disappointing original run? Greg. Greg. Sci-fi. Incorrect. Mike. Mike. HBO? Incorrect. I'll just go. It's MTV. Basically, Whoa. all of the directors that were making videos learned how to make videos by watching Blade Runner, and people went back to watch it. Ridley Scott originally wanted Harrison Ford to wear a 1940s-style hat for the movie. What made him change his mind? Greg. Greg. Harrison Ford said he wouldn't do it. <laughs> Close. Mike. Mike. He looks so much sexier with rain dripping right down his face. Incorrect. It was uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah. Oh, Sure. As soon as I guessed, I was like, oh, wait, now it's the other one. <laughs> this movie is set in 2019. Are you surprised they got it so wrong and actually created a nicer, more pleasant world than we really have? <laughs> Mike. Greg. Mike. Yes. Yes, that is correct. I would correct. much rather live in here. <laughs> Do you see how neighborly he is when he's buying the noodle bowls? Mm-hmm. Everybody's just, I love it. <laughs> I've heard Blade Runner called a liberal dream because all the cultures are meshed together and everybody's living <laughs> happily. Uh there's a spinner, one of the cars, on permanent display at the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle, Washington. Deckard's red spinner, however, is on display at what museum in Titusville, Florida? Mike. Mike. The Trump Presidential Library Museum. Incorrect. I have no guess. Uh, it's the Cop Museum. Oh. Why is that? Why is that surprising? Mike. Greg. Mike. I didn't know cops enjoyed museums. Incorrect. Greg. Greg. Because D- Deckard wasn't a cop in the news of Bounty Hunter. That is true, but the answer is you wouldn't think Florida had museums. In the movie Blade Runner 2049, we're told Rachel's serial number. What is it? Mike. Mike? 8675309. Incorrect. Greg? Greg. 69420. <laughs> Woo! Nice. I don't even care if I'm wrong. It's Those... uh, N7FAA52318. Oh, of course. And oh, finally. Of course. How famous was the actor who played Gaff at the time of the movie's release? Greg. Mike. Greg? Not famous. Okay, Mike? Medium famous. 
Almost famous. Oh, oh no. Mike, right there at the end. He got no. it. That's a two for Mike. Uh, great job, guys. When we come back, more about Blade Runner. Correct. <laughs> Roger Ebert wondered in his review for the final cut why the Tyrell Corporation didn't just make boxes with arms that did work on Mars, which reminds me of why that classic Star Wars moment where why did they make that robot who was getting burned alive scream and yeah. feel pain? <laughs> why did Tyrell recreate humans? What does the movies and the characters' relationship with repl replicants tell us? Are they stand-ins for anything or anyone? Well, you don't want to fuck a trash receptacle with legs. Uh, so. Speak for yourself, bro. S sex bots uh, work that way. And I, I think, yeah, you, Tyrell obviously has a god complex. And he, for his own sick the validation. The guy living in the pyramid? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dressed in white. The dressed all Pharaoh. in white. <laughs> uh, he made a new replicant who doesn't know she's a replicant and didn't tell anybody just so he could personally fuck with her. Like That's so fucked up, dude. So all of this is him being like, uh, it, it feels better if they feel pain and know that they're going to die in four years. I think it's interesting the way that the movie doesn't address it. And up until you just read that thing from Roger Ebert, I hadn't heard, heard many people talk about it. Like the movie never actually says why he works so hard to make them indistinguishable from humans. Mm -hmm. And Terrell is still at it all throughout the movie. He is like, even though Rachel gets popped as a replicant, he's still trying to figure out how he could make that right. not happen. And it's like, nobody ever says to him, bro, why are you even doing this? You know how much work you're making for everybody else because we have to like track these down because you make them indistinguishable? <laughs> if you just put a little chip in them. But it's because he, he gets to do whatever he wants because he's right. so rich. He's as rich mm -hmm. as people like are now probably even times 10 and well, so the only thing left to do is become a god and to create life indistinguishable from from that of the of human you know i mean one of the most i think prophetic things about the movies although i don't know what it was like in the 80s i do know that like the the gap between rich people and poor people is greater than it's ever been in at least american history maybe ancient history as well uh is that you get bored like money only buys so many things yeah, yeah. and but the real thing that abides is power. Look what I can do. Like, just look what I can do. That's it, yeah. that, that's the reason for being rich. It's the same reason the most dangerous game is a story. It's the same reason uh, the purge. Like, so many things. It's like, I'm rich. Uh, is it indecent proposal? Eventually, normal entertainments. Who cares? Right. Uh, I think the other Squid angle game. is is JF. Uh, which is E.B. Farnham in Deadwood, which yeah. means yeah. he only plays initialed guys. Uh, <laughs> But his he's a big part of it too, but his drive is to cure his own disease. So I think it's instead of doing it to animals, they're now doing these kinds of like, can we push genetics in the replicants to figure out how to solve these issues for humans? And so there's I don't know if it's uh and he's very poor and lonely. And he's very poor. Uh, and I also think for him it's a game. I mean I, I think the fact that he designs toys yeah. and that he plays that game with with um Terrell, I think it's very much even more than trying to cure Methuselah syndrome or whatever he has, it's just it's an occupation for him. It's an idle mm. thing to do to set his mind on. And I think he's not. They they, they say he has Methuselah. So does that mean you live a thousand years? It what? means his glands age very quickly. His glands it's it's quickly. progeria, Jack. right? Jack disease. It's, yeah, or otherwise yeah. known as uh, the disease from the documentary Jack. He's all yeah. jacked up. Uh, 
It's reverse double Benjamin Buttons. <laughs> but, oh, you don't want reverse double Benjamin Buttons. Which is, that's my favorite dive off a diving board, by the way. <laughs> Where you turn into an old baby on the way down. But he, I also think he's not all there. Mike. He's such an interesting, and this actor is always an interesting dude, but he he instantly knows they're replicants, but doesn't care in a way everybody else would. He doesn't know that his toys are creepy, or like <laughs> what what is real and not real is so fluid to him. So he could, where Terrell feels like he's doing despicable things because of they are despicable by nature because he wants to have control. JF is just like, I don't know what's real anymore, and is... There's something interesting going on mentally with him as well. I mean, let's uh, let's be real here. JF exists to be foils for literally every character. He straight yeah. up says, uh, "I'm just like you guys in a way, right? I have You're a right. I have a cap on my life." Um, but then uh, Tyrell and Rick. Let's talk about him and Rick. Yeah, and I'm the I've tried so hard not to be the from the book guy, but in the book, the character that he's replacing, J.R. Isidore, is like what they call in the book special. And it's supposed to be that he's got a reduced IQ. If you remember Leon in the beginning of the movie, he's like, I've had an IQ test recently. Everybody constantly has to take IQ tests in this world uh. to, like, prove that they are not so ill-affected by the radiation that they need to be, like, pushed out of the gene pool. And so it's supposed. I think it is very much supposed to be, like, that he is stupid and off. And it's supposed to blur the line of, like, well, like, how about a human who's super dumb or weird? Is that mm-hmm. Does that not work anymore? Is it because he's a human right. then... It doesn't matter. You know, he, he has the same sort of look outlook at life that the replicants do. He has the same sort of lifespan the replicants do. Why? Is it just because he has this accident of birth facility where he is, he happened to be born human, that and that ha- gives him the it, rights that they don't desi- deserve? And, like, is that that much different than uh, Sean, Rachel, um, just happened to be born a replicant? You know, like, right. as far yeah. as she knows, as far as anyone knows, she's just a human. And, and I think that Deckard, in this, in all of this, I think if Deckard is a replicant, this is so dumb, but I think if he's not a Nexus 6 like the rest of them are, he's a Nexus 7, right. which nobody even knows about yet. And Rucker Hauer alludes to that by saying, uh, like by counting down and saying 6 and 7. But so whatever Deckard is, they may have found a way to make it so that he doesn't have that short lifespan anymore. And so that just erodes one more of the sort of partitions between what is replicant and what is mm-hmm. human. And the movie over and over and over again is just saying, like, these lines are so Arbitrary. blurred, but they're like, they give this universe some sort of meaning to humans. Because if you are, like, stuck on Earth and you have no, you have literally no upward mobility, the one thing you can say to yourself is, well, fuck, at least I'm a human, right? At least I'm mm-hmm. not a special. At least I'm not a replicant. I'm still a human. And when that breaks down, then there is a little bit of social order the powers that be are, are afraid will go with it because you don't have that right. anymore to cling to. I think like I don't want to compare the replicants to any any type of marginalized person, but I do think that's part of what makes the movie so interesting is that look how pa- happy people are when they can be like, but I'm better than you. Yeah. You know, at least I'm normal. And I swear to God, like, this let's say this is the fifth time I watched this movie, and maybe if the fifth time I watched it was in two thousand two, I would feel differently. But in two thousand twenty two, I know that like they're clearly the villains, but they're not to no, me that not. much. You know, like at like at watching it now, it's just like um, you're to be dehumanized as often as you are to be called not human, and you're only. Uh, I don't know, a uh, way of dealing with that to like change the future is to rise up in violence. 
And I mean, it makes sense to me now. They're very specifically worried about one thing. I mean, they don't even just want their freedom. The thing they're very specifically worried about is that they all have this, like, two-year clock where they're going to be dead. And what is more human than to be in anguish over the fact that you will one day cease to exist, that you yourself will disappear like tears in the rain? Like, that's the most human thing there is. And so they they have that experience. So that is enough of a touchstone to be human, Because bulldozers don't have that, but also birds don't have that, dogs don't have that. You know? Yeah, to mm. sit in contemplation of your own mortality and the mortality of everyone that matters to you, the Pris in your life, the Leon in your life, to know that you will either ex- extinguish in front of them or they will perish in front of you, that is like almost too much to bear. And then to have that all shrunk down into like a four-year timeline. Why did Tyrell do that to them? Because, because he he doesn't see them as being mm. as important and as what they control. can as what their output is. Their output is all that's important to him. So if he can amp up their output, it doesn't matter what else oh, he has I, to. Oh, I don't, I, I, more rhetorical, why give them the knowledge and the fear of dying is what I was saying more than the why do it to oh, you. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, but, ultimately, Terrell's, Terrell's exercise is ultimately the most important step that we could have in capitalism, which would be you create a product that is itself a consumer. And we mm-hmm. see this realized most fully in Blade Runner 2049, where K is not just a product, but he actually then buys products. And so if you can create your own long-lived products that then turn around and actually buy things from you, that's like that's like a breakthrough in capitalism, really. That's Philip Morris getting 12-year-olds on cigarettes. <laughs> or having uh, a three-man podcast that has three listeners and it's the three of us. Like, that's what we did. <laughs> yeah, but we're doing really well podcast. in that demo. <laughs> we love our shit. For, for the, the replica thing, I remember watching it the first time, the theatrical cut, and being like, yeah, Deckard is a fucking replicant. This one, I feel like, I guess there's... Watching this version, I can see how it could be an argument. He doesn't have the eye thing. It's not. He bro- does have the eye thing, though. Does he have the eye thing? He has the, the there's final one, cut. Yeah, there's one very famous shot. There's a shot where. Okay, so this is why, in part, I think he's not just another Nexus Six. I think he doesn't have the eye thing as much because um, he he is like less of a replicant or he's a more advanced version. Mm-hmm. But there is a scene. There's an actual shot, and you can look it up if you want, where. Uh, her eyes are glowing orange, and his eyes in the background, unfocused, are also glowing orange. Oh, shit. To me, me it is a definitive answer, but it's also the fact that it's blurred in the background is a sign that it's not important (laughs) really that much whether he is or not. We get so laser-focused on the answers to these questions that we forget that it's the questions that are the important Mm -hmm. part of it. You know, it doesn't matter if he is or isn't because that distinction between being a replicant and not being a replicant is not not real it's not a real thing and so we don't have to then get caught up in that we know what deckard is he is the things that we see him do right? right he's not one of these things or the other and the line is so blurred but also at the same time the definitive answer is definitely yes because he's got the orange eyes in that one part yeah I, I, <laughs> I said earlier that every time i watch it it's for a different thing Mm-hmm. And that's never been one. I don't fucking care. I think it reduces the movie to uh, yes. this M. Night Shyamalan like knockoff. Like, uh, I do agree that the question is is the thing, not the answer is the thing. But this this time when I'm watching it, I was like, what if he's re- what if he's human? What if he's a uh, replicant? You know, and like, I don't think it changes as much as people want it to. They just want, you know, it's it's like mystery. It's box Schrodinger's shows character all he, over again. He's both. 
I mean, he is both a human and he is both a replicant. Like, it's both of those realities at the same time. And then what does it change when it's one or the other? It, it's both and it's neither. And it's, you know, it's definitive, but it's not. I mean, I tried to watch it like, how crazy would it be if he's hunting down his own people? Like, the movie doesn't need that answer to make it seem like that. The movie does a good right. job of making replicants feel like people. And that's where the people, horror yeah. Com- yeah, comes from. Because I don't they're, feel like they're the villains at all. And what I like about it, though, is that they're not... Ge- they're not what did you say, Mike? I said I don't feel like they're the villains at all in, in that way because we were told they slaughtered a ship, but we don't see it, so that emotionally doesn't hit us. And then those were probably racist assholes anyway. And the only people we see them go after really are like Tyrell or the guy who's hunting them down. So I'm like, yeah, Team Replicant all the way. Which is crazy for you to say because you are a staunch robot hater. I know. I'm growing in my older age. <laughs> but I do think the movie goes out of its way to show that there is something different about them and that it is very creepy. Like, I, I do think they come off as very creepy and, like, prone to sort of violence and prone to just be like, this guy is bothering us. Let's just kill him. I you mean, know? real quick, because we have to get out of here, but uh, there's a lot of ways to kill a man. I know how to do like a thousand of them with this pen right here in my hand, but he chooses and eyes are a big thing in this movie. We talked about yeah. the, uh, the glowing eyes. And then we spent a lot of time with somebody we haven't talked about tonight, which is, uh, the eye maker, like the very specific eye maker. Um, and then just got a star in Hollywood. Yeah. Congratulations to him. Uh, also in everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, yeah. and then, but when baddie, the movies baddie, I still remember how that is the case. Uh, goes to kill him. He doesn't. There's so many more humane ways to do it, and he specifically gouges his eyes and squeezes his head till he's dead. And Boss. that that seems villainous to me. Yeah, well, I it, or at least monstrous, right? I mean, because the killing of Terrell at that point seems like everybody could be on board for it mm-hmm. because he has acted with such impunity and he's hurt so many people and um it he doesn't, doesn't give a to fuck. Have... yeah but the crushing his head is that part that where you're like i can't quite fall i like the movie wants you to feel distaste for the replicants because that's what humans are feeling naturally in the environment of the movie itself there and in the book they talk about this too like it's just there's something off about them and we see like that like valleying yeah the red eyes but also the fact they don't quite respond to things correctly they don't quite have empathy and i think it's really good because we should not i think be able to come away saying the replicants are good and we like them right. and they had it right we should feel like they have a right to exist but they are very different than us and they are perhaps dangerous to us. And we have to figure out a way to like create understanding between our two very different people rather than dominion of one over the other. I don't know. Sounds like CRT critical replicant theory. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) Speed round. All right, gentlemen, it's speed round time. Here we go. Does ACAB include Deckard? This yep. is two weeks in a row where we've watched two nineteen eighty two movies about cops in one way or another. Does that include him? Hell yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. he like uh, th- this is the story one way or another of a traitor, a traitor either to exactly his own kind or a traitor to what we understand by the end of the movie to include his own kind. He's you know ultimately he's a man who hunts men. That's that's wrong. Right. How and be honest about this one. How many things have you seen that we wouldn't believe? Like uh, <laughs> you're sitting you're sit next to Harrison Ford, and you got to you got to list off two things. 
that are uh-huh. going to die with you. What are they? I, I've okay. seen zero. Everything I've seen in my life, you guys would believe so easily. Well, we were there with literally every great thing <laughs> yeah. that's happened to you, Mike. I was a little fat kid. And one time in school, I sat on a swing and it broke and I <laughs> fell to the ground. I don't think people would actually believe something that perfect could happen or that miserable could happen to an individual. <laughs> I want you to do it and say, I've seen things you wouldn't believe. <laughs> fat kids breaking swings. A little fat boy <laughs> sitting right through a swing and falling to the sand. I did say, Greg, uh, what did you see? You did not see that. Everyone else around you saw that. <laughs> I saw their faces, Ryan. You wouldn't believe how delighted somebody can look while mocking you. <laughs> uh, just because of that story, Mike, Ryan, we're going to get points. <laughs> uh, how do the allusions to the paintings of Vermeer help us understand the central thesis of the movie? Vermeer is the guy who uh, would like... Uh, do like very like tiny eye holes and shit. Mm-hmm. And he sat in like a camera. Oh no! He sat in something called a camera obscura, and he would like basically blend his paints directly into the the light. And so he created these hyper realistic paintings through something that is like maybe kind of like a cheat in a yeah. way. Um, but like still, I don't think you could look at a Vermeer and be like, um, oh, this guy cheated. It sucks. I hate it. Bullshit. Uh, these like very hyper realistic paintings, and I never noticed until this viewing. Um, when Harrison Ford is looking at that picture, I was like, oh, that, that reflection kind of reminds me of a Vermeer painting. And then when he goes into the reflection, it is so clearly that girl with the pearl earring, that famous Vermeer painting. And I had just never noticed that before. And then I thought, wow, when you're talking about like blending reality and hyper reality, like Vermeer is the perfect one for that. Right. Because his camera, his, his paintings were almost like pictures, really. They were like almost like photographs because he's sitting in something called a camera obscura and he's kind of painting with the light itself. And that like, is it real? Is it not real? I thought it was just, God, the perfect like sort of metaphor for what's going on with the rest of the movie. And how much it matters. You and know, how much like, it matters. How, yeah. And how like, much are you going to complain about the fact that Vermeer quote unquote cheated or how this robot that you're this replicant that you're in love with? I'm so worried about like Dude, don't write us because we said robot. Yes. Yeah, I don't apologize. Um, like that she, you know, was born this way and changed or like whatever, you know, like how much are you going to be worried about that amount of cheating? But I did feel like that was like sort of like this real like sub Rosa allusion to Vermeer that said so much without occupying any space in the movie. When I was a kid, I wasn't like, what was the deal with that picture? <laughs> but like when you see it as an adult and you're familiar with the work of Vermeer, you're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And it's just like this little extra thing sort of like thrown in there. That was a lot of Vermeer talk, Mike. I'm going to have to give Greg a point for that. You understand, yes? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have a lot to say as well, but this is speed round, so we can just move on. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I appreciate your gamemanship. Uh, and finally, we were pretty sure 40 years ago that we were destroying the planet. Should we have maybe done something about that? Yeah, should we have like, should we have looked into that? Create like an Earth Day, like a day where we all think about the Earth. Did, did that help? Just think about it. Maybe if we had a superhero where our powers combine, call up Captain Planet. Captain Planet kind of quit on the job, bro. Like, yeah. obviously it wasn't done. You said you were going to bring pollution down to zero. It's so... I don't know how it looks to you guys, but does pollution seem to be down to zero? And that's an impossible task. Like, you're going to make sure that nobody drops a bottle of empty bottle of Coke on the ground. You can't bring pollution down to zero. But I've no. been to... Make I've an been effort, to... Captain Planet. I've been to clean countries you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Germany. Where culturally they just put their trash in the pocket till they get home, which in America, patoo. No, we would not do that. I'll uh, take this that one step sucks. further. If I have to patoo, I'll patoo right in my pocket. 
I'll spit yeah, right in there. You're a clean person. Yeah. If I put one, I'm gonna. I don't flush, but if I put two, you know <laughs> I'm flushing. <laughs> oh, on that note, uh, Blade Runner was nominated for two Oscars. It got zero. But how many Moody's will it win tonight? All of them. Let's take a break. <laughs> well, that is very very funny or very sad, and perhaps now you have something to think about or very problematic, and perhaps we have something to think about. But in any event, I'm sure you have some reaction to what you're listening to. So why not check us out on the social media? You can go to Instagram or Twitter and find us at Your Pop Filter. Email contacts at Your Pop Filter. Hey, everybody. Keep watching them So many awards that this movie deserves. But unfortunately, it's only going to get one award from each category. I wish I could give it two. (laughs) But I can't do that. I'm going to give... Uh, I'm going to say an award category. You two are going to nominate things, and then I'm going to give you a point if you're the winner. And we're going to start out with moment. And Greg, I think you ruined this, so you're going to go first. Moment you know Deckard is a replicant. And it's to me? Yes. Because there is that, I mean, we could get like artsy-fartsy with it or whatever, but I would say that there is one like 15-second shot that people take as the definitive proof. There's a... Does somebody have the orange eyes? And he does have the orange eyes out of focus. But when you see those eyes, and then you just look at the rest of the clues. But I'll leave some of the clues for Mike. Uh, I'm going to get artsy-fartsy. It's uh, when he goes to kiss Rachel, he turns her head and kisses her ear hole so hard. Because this dumbass replicant doesn't know which orifice you're supposed to kiss, and it's clearly the mouth. It's so, that whole scene's uncomfortable, but the weirdest fuck, and I went, that guy's a robot. Robot. And I just fucking Leo DiCaprio memed him. <laughs> As you kissed your wife right in the ear. Right as you celebrated. Yeah, that's going to Mike. Mike. Because <laughs> who gives a shit? Uh, the next one is future tech you wish you had. We didn't do a shopping spree tonight. I know, dude. We did trivia instead. I wonder if that was a mistake. Mike, what is the future tech you wish you had? I want his enhanced computer, which I do feel like Law & Order just went, that's real, <laughs> and just made everybody think we have it. But no, I his heard about the, it. But not, not only... Uh, does he enhance? It goes around corners. That's when we finally get to the woman with the pearl earring. We, it's because he goes around corners within the camera, and that just seems like it'd be fucking rad. That's fascinating. He put a picture into a computer, which right there, just like like it's a CD-ROM. You just insert it in there, <laughs> and you're like, computer, you handle this shit. And yeah, to go around corners. Um, this is a bad part for people with epilepsy. He's like, uh, computer, go forty six twenty nine, and it's like, chick, 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 chick. That part sucks. But computer uh, cause half the audience to seize up. <laughs> wow, that's powerful computer. <laughs> Greg, what do you got? Uh, so this is future tech we wish we had. I would love, and this is probably ostentatious of me, but I would just love one of those ziggurats. Uh, just, uh, I believe in cyberpunk, they're often called arcologies, like huge mega structures that like you would live in, but then also shop in and like maybe never even leave. Um, and the like arcologies that are on display in, um, Blade Runner are just so cool. But yeah, I want specifically, I want that ziggurat. I don't think that I, uh, I would ever afford to like own my own ziggurat, but if I'm renting a room in one. I will pay more to get a nice view of the giant pipes that shoot fire out. Oh man, you got to <laughs> yeah. when the refineries are flaring, you got to yeah, see dude. that. That's so beautiful. <laughs> uh yeah. So you proposed to your wife. <laughs> Mike, I want one of those computers, but that that one's going to Greg. Both of them are uh right. classic old technology redone. Yeah. You yeah. Know? It's this is a fancy new pyramid. Um <laughs> director signature moment. Something that we have been trying to figure out since the dawn of movie of the year. Yeah. What is Ridley Scott 
all about. Greg, we're starting with you. And again, this is six weeks after a different Ridley Scott movie came out, uh, episode of ours. All right. Here I go. This is what I got. Um, this is definitely like a director's cut scene. Uh, Gaff comes and picks him up, and they're going to drive together to the police station. And the length of just driving through the, you know, it's air, hovering through the air of the city and the music building up and how long it takes them to get there and then how, like, ostentatious the ziggurat is as they get closer and closer and closer to it and how big the music gets. That is just, like, a very long, you know, 30, 45, maybe two-minute scene where all it is is world building and you totally buy it. And I feel like by the time you're done with that, you are just so on board with his project. And so I'm tying it to his amazing world building by just using this very long shot across the city. And the kind of thing that, like, absolutely has to be left on the cutting room floor if you're a producer, right? Like, how are we oh, moving yeah. the plot forward? We're not. This is bullshit. Get it out of here. And the kind of thing that he's very clearly interested in. For the for the theatrical release, they were like, cut that down to half and have Harrison Ford be talking over the entire <laughs> thing. Like, it, it, like, they got it from two angles. It doesn't in that part is that the part where Harrison Ford brings his bowl of noodles and is just eating it on the yeah road? he's always like whoa whoa <laughs> anyways, I'm a Blade Runner it comes from a different uh, book but that's not important <laughs> Mike what do you got for Ridley Scott moment uh, I was trying to figure out I didn't want to just say tactile in this again so like a specific way he does it and it's an alien he definitely does it I think in Prometheus and here uh, maybe in Thelma and Louise with like dust but he he very much likes to obscure stuff with the atmosphere whether uh-huh. it's rain or smoke or dust he's like stuff's gonna pop out of it like he <laughs> he layers it that way uh so not using the camera or post-production but like the literal environment to yeah so you see and then like uh one of my favorite parts about this movie is you'll be in a big room and one shade will be down one shade will be half up one shade will be all the way up and so he's controlling the light not through lights of like a set but lights of the actual environment he's making it a film noir by shutting the shades of this this window um from the shades of the window from leon when when leon v deckard it's all like this fog and smoke that they're coming in and out of i just watched a documentary uh that was a lot about the bradbury building which is where i want to say jf jf lives and which is just straight up called the bradbury building yeah like like that's not something for the movie that's not like an illusion (laughs) They didn't futurize that part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Stephanie and I, or my wife and I, who uh, watched the documentary together, we were like, did they ruin that building? What happened? Like, why is there so much dust and rain in there? That sucks. It's a monument. Uh, so what they did was they covered the floor in cork. And not only did that shoot dust up when you walked on it, but all the rain got swept up by the cork. So they just swept all that up at the end. And then nice. the building was fine. Apparently, uh, they told they were told Ridley Scott they were like, "Please do not use this building. It's so overused, and it probably will be so overused in the history of cinema." And he's like, "Yeah, but it looks cool." <laughs> the other two uh, from this documentary, which is called uh, "L.A. Plays Itself," uh, is the Union Station building, mm-hmm. which we see in the beginning, and then his apartment, that's like old school Adobe looking. Um, which this is a rare thing because most movies that use that building, and it's in a million movies, will always put villains in there. Because yeah. if it's postmodern, that's villainous. Hmm. Yeah, it uh, looks I'm like gonna, a lair for sure. I'm going to give that to Mike. Uh, yeah, I like the whole, not only is the uh, the deco of the movie going to make it, like, the feel there, but it's also going to help us shoot. Uh, cringiest moment. We've talked about a couple of these, but Mike, what do you got for the big one? 
I want one, and I, I think this is this actor's strong suit, but the guy who plays E.B. Barnum slash J.F., uh, when he meets Pris, I'm so uncomfortable because you don't know the power dynamic yet, and you very quickly see his creeped show and that what he feels about toys, and you're like, is he going to do something uncomfortable to Daryl Hannah? Uh, and, I, yeah, I just I couldn't un... My shoulders were all the way to my ears throughout that whole scene. It turns out that he does have an appreciation for these things, as opposed to, like, he's not fucking, I don't think, those, right. those little toys that are walking around. But, yeah, I hear you. Greg? Yeah, it's so it's a, it's probably such a, a a silly answer in the grand scheme of things, but the specifically the way he looks at Rachel when he closes the door on her where it's like you can see this marriage of his bloodlust and his like actual lust um and I just I think the movie is doing it in a way to make us feel uncomfortable, but for the rest for the next like minute I do legitimately feel extremely <laughs> uncomfortable. And part of it is just, it reminds me that in so many of these stories, there is this like, when a love scene comes up in movies I've watched for so much of my life, there is this weird moment where the woman says no a couple times and then mm-hmm. gets like overridden. And we do know now how like noxious that has been <laughs> to our understanding of consent and everything. And so even when it gives the movie a sharp edge, it legit you know does cause me to cringe when i reflect on it i mean another thing that we didn't talk about too is that like it's very 40s you know to like have you know to say no a couple times but that just means yes and maybe that was a reference but also his job her sexual assaulter if you want to call him that um is to kill androids so Mm. who knows what her saying no could mean you know like this is this is how I stay alive. I mean, he looks at her with contempt when he slams the door on her. It's supposed to be yeah. passion, I guess, but there is that edge in there of like, I also kill you people, you know, and it's just like, damn, dude, I don't know. <laughs> Too much going on here. Uh, yeah, the specificity of that one, like, even though it's from the big scene that we talked about, uh, I'm going to give that one to Greg. Finally, Work. pound for pound performance. Trivia was a bit of a hint of what will not win tonight. Um, let's go with Greg. Who is going to win? Uh, it for me it has to be Rucker Howard. He is all over the place with this, and I I feel like probably Ridley Scott told him like let go, just like let it come out, like let it let it develop as it develops, and he took that and he really went with it and it's like there's moments where you want him to seem like a cooler villain than he seems, and there's <laughs> moments like he's still remember, a bit of a dork. Remember how he's just suddenly holding a dove. Uh-huh. Like he's a, he's a drama bitch. He is like he's there <laughs> yeah. for the drama in part of it. He crushes Terrell's head because it's part of like a dramatic move that he could make, and he feels like by gouging out his eyes that also has like imagistic significance to him. And I think that like all those different layers and the how uncomfortable you feel are like all these different things Rutger Hauer is doing really effectively and never giving into the desire to just make his character cool or suave or anything. He always pushes so that you're not comfortable with him. And I think that's like such a responsible actor thing to do. It's interesting. Uh, when he kills Tyrell, E.B. Farnham from the HBO show Deadwood is in the room. If he wasn't, would he have just knocked Tyrell off like in the quickest way possible? Snapped his neck. Yeah, just like, I'm just going to get this done. But with an audience, I don't know. I got to do it this way. Mike, what do you got? Uh, yeah, it's... It's Rutger Hauer. If you're a geeky little kid like me, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the Mike, movie, Mike. Uh, Merlin, the Tenth Kingdom. He 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 was in and out of so many genre 
be disease genre stuff growing up and then being like oh this is why because this guy's amazing mm-hmm. in fucking blade runner i uh, as a kid uh, i watched this movie with my dad called blind fury where he was a blind samurai didn't oh. know back then that it was a comedy uh, <laughs> i haven't i haven't seen it since then uh it's probably super offensive but uh i don't know man i just i think the guy's cool part of this I, and i'm not saying that this is true but part of this performance sort of feels like he doesn't know english so they're just like yeah. feeding him words and just go like you don't know what you're saying but just go and it makes it so much better the venga boys of replicants finally guys mike we'll start with you uh you love blade runner you uh I'm so far around on it yes uh, i'm saying you in general but you also uh, do um you want something else what is your recommendation i think if you want blade runner no, if you like Blade Runner, you want more of that. If it, uh, if you want the uh, the moral things to chew on, uh, check out the 2010 film Never Let Me Go with oh. Andrew Garfield, Carrie Mulligan, and Keira Knightley. And they are clones that don't, I think for a lot of movies, don't know they are clones, and they only exist to give the real versions of themselves their organs. The book is fucking amazing. And the movie Asaguro got... Ishiguro, I can't remember his name. The movie got trashed when it came out, but like definitely stock has been rising since then. I'm glad I didn't know that. I fucking loved it when it came out. Oh, but now you don't love it because now, now you know like it, other people like it. Other people do. <laughs> Mike, like you it. should. I'm out. Mike, you should read the book. That author is amazing. Some guy that wrote Remains of the Day. Um, he's such a good author. Isn't it weird when you find out that Remains of the Day books like that were not written in the 1700s? Yes. Yeah. Specifically, <laughs> Remains of the Day. Yeah. And you're like, that same guy also wrote the clones being harvested for their organ story. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. okay, that's interesting. <laughs> So he lived to be 400 years old. <laughs> uh, I'm going to jump on Mike real quick, which is uh, Multiplicity, uh, a fantastic movie with Michael oh, Keaton. Yeah. But one scene that sticks out is when they clone him and when Michael Keaton wakes up from the process, he's like, oh, man, that was crazy. How did it go? And uh, the doctor's like, what? Um, well, how, how are my clones? Did, did I get cloned? And the doctor's like, um, and points behind his ear and there's a two behind his ear. And that's just a horrifying moment of mm-hmm. in cinema history for me. <laughs> uh, and a lot of Blade Runner is this. A lot of Never Let Me Go is this. But like that, finding that out is awful. I don't know. I, I couldn't put my mind around it. Greg, what do you got? Uh, I read um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep this week, uh, just because we were doing the movie. And it was awesome. But I actually think that if you really, really, really like Blade Runner and you want the aesthetic of it and the feeling of it seriously read neuromancer like i think everybody should read neuromancer i think it's one of the best books ever written and it's so cool and it tackles all these same ideas and a lot like blade runner it doesn't spend a lot of time explaining itself it you just have to sort of pick up on the vibe and enjoy the world that you're in and read it slowly it's an amazing amazing book and it's part of a trilogy so then you get uh, two other books as well an amazing show from two amazing competitors, but unfortunately, one of you was more amazing than the other. Mike, who do you think it was? Uh, I think I am human and cannot go up against <laughs> such a flawless replicant, so I think Greg won. Greg, do you agree? I felt like there was a part in trivia where I started running away with it, and then the wheels came off, and from that point forward, I thought Mike caught up to me. I think he edged me out. We are a scientific show. With yeah. points about talking yeah. about movies. Trivia sort of ruins that. Every other show <laughs> without trivia, we are fucking dead on and we give the exact right amount of points. Trivia fucking blows things up. Yeah. Trivia always gets a little silly season, but that's part, that's part of its job. Greg, you got 27. Mike, you got 30. Damn. 
Damn. I think that's the same score you beat me by <laughs> last week on a movie I hated. Well, now we know exactly how much more I know about movies than you. <sighs> Three points. And what can I say but nothing? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I have no excuse except to say that I have a, t- I have a slight tummy ache from too much Taco Bell. And also, uh, Mike is always going to win when he, cu- when he knows to say almost famous. Like, that's Oof. that was that was a good save. I think yeah. my nose bled from how hard I concentrated. <laughs> Man, see that's a good that's a good thing though. Like that, if if I had thought of that, I only would have lost by one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe that wasn't the total reason. Um, we have so many awesome shows left. I don't know what you guys are most excited for the most. Uh, a fast time show that is going to tear us apart as friends. Uh, two horror movies: Poltergeist and The Thing. Uh, we have Tootsie. We've got a Parada 2 watch along for just the Patreons. This is going to be quite the exciting season. But, and I hesitate to ask this question because it is bad podcasting and bad drama. Did we uh, blow our wad? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to watch all the movies that are going to lose to Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> the one I guess that I still keep like half an eye on is E.T. It's Stevie Spiels. It's a beautiful movie. It's also well made. Um, and I think that it could, it, we, we are by definition going to watch it later than this one, right? Like, so like we're going to have watched it more recently when it's time to vote. I think that that one has a real puncher's chance. And then there, whenever there are two that have a chance, there's a chance it's going to split and go somewhere completely different. Right. So, and then Dog Day Afternoon fucking wins. Yeah. I would say this whole, this whole field is wide open, but, um, this did like better than I thought it would. And that makes me feel like it is probably like the favorite at the moment. Here's what we can say declaratively. And you don't want to do declarative statements in like competition, but uh, 48 hours is not going to win. No. no. Like, yeah. Like that has no chance of winning. And this has like three very enthused boys. So <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Mike went from like, I don't really, I've never gotten this movie. It's never done anything for me to, Oh, that's what Blade Runner is. That might be the thing that really gives it a huge edge. Because for me, I was just like, I watched the movie twice this week and both times i was like yeah it's like my favorite movie that's not as powerful as like wait i get it now (laughs) (laughs) speaking of that uh should we have regular iq tests in society like i do think not me dude i'm i would say i'm like i'm easily down two points per year maybe per quarter like i've i'm getting dumber at like an incredible rate i used to be getting smarter you keep watching that scene with adam stanley describing the economy (laughs) <laughs> and then passing out <laughs> uh, okay well I yeah Blade Runner we're not going to talk about you for a while but I, See you soon. I do think that at the end of this season your name might come up a couple of times or two um, I want to thank you guys so much for being here congratulations to Mike for winning Greg you're going to do it next time uh, man I guess I got to score more than 27 points to beat this movie expert Mike Ravogs it's annoying, right? Because he seems so stupid. I'm such a it moron. Yeah. Yeah. I think the problem is I have a tendency to sort of like mesmerize you yeah. with my good points. Wait, that's what I say when you're hosting. That's yeah. Why I and then when, when you're hosting. And then when I stop talking, you sort of like come to and Mike is there. And I just go. Just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and he's and like, like, oh, fart noises Mark. are funny. Mark. <laughs> that's like, Greg, you're joking right now, but I do legitimately believe that when anytime Mike <laughs> wins over me. So. <laughs> You guys are it's not friends. funny. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, uh, thank you so much to, uh, for Greg. I am Ryan. And Mike, what is E.T. short for? His legs. He's got his little legs. Little legs. He's got those stubby little legs. I get it now. <laughs>